If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, and as you turn there, I would just like to fill you guys in on a, uh, something that happened in life of the church this week. Miss um, Joyce O'Dell, uh, some of the, they recently joined the church. Uh, she had a bad fall on Friday. Uh, she, she hurt her soldier, uh, shoulder and had to have shoulder surgery uh, this past Friday. So just be praying for her. She's in the hospital uh, at Piedmont. She should be there till Monday. Uh, but it's, they've had a rough go of things between the house and now this. Just be praying uh, for uh, their family. Well, we're going to look at nine verses uh, this morning. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 13 in Luke, and then we will pray and dive into the word of the Lord together. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13, starting in the first verse. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found, I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Father God, we bow now before your holy presence. You are a righteous and blameless God. You are worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. You are the one and only sovereign. So God, we bow now before you. And God, when we enter into your holy presence, we are made aware of our sin. God, we pray even now that you would reveal our sin to you. You would reveal now how we have walked astray from you this past week, how we have um, served ourselves and not served others, how we have been impatient, that we have been rude, uh, how we have sowed discord among the brothers. God, I pray that you bring these things to mind, Father. And God, we confess them all. All the things that you bring to mind, knowing that the things of this past week that have been against you, we, we cast them before you because you care for us and you cared for us specifically through the Lord Jesus in his death, in our place. So God, it's through his shed blood we ask you to wash away all our sins. Forgive us in Christ, Lord. Lord, we thank you that blessed is the man whose sin you will not hold against him. So God, we thank you that in Christ our sins will no longer be held against us because they were placed on your own son. God, remind us of that great truth this morning. God, we pray that uh, the gospel that we just prayed would continue to bear fruit uh, in the life of our community. God, we pray specifically for Roland Dry this morning at Inspiration Baptist Church. God, we pray that you would uh, bless the preaching of the word. God, I pray that as he stands from the pulpit to declare your word, that you would fall, have the Holy Spirit of God fall afresh upon him as he declares your holy 
inerrant word. God, I pray that you would build that church up in your likeness, transform them from one degree of glory to the next. God, we pray for those in our midst who are hurting. God, we we continue to lift up Betty and, and Tommy as they battle cancer, Lord. Continue to show them grace and strength um, by your hand. God, we pray for Miss Joyce as she's recovering from this shoulder surgery. God, we pray that you would just be kind and gracious to her. Her and Bob have been through so much. God, we pray that you would um, just be merciful to them, help them heal, and give them a season of, of good health. And dear God, we pray for tonight. We pray for, for Roger as he's going to come and share for us uh, about the debilitating effects of dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. God, I, pr- I pray for those in our own congregation who deal with this, uh, who have to care for an aging parent um, or spouse. And God, we pray that you would be um, very kind to us tonight. Give us wisdom that we may better serve those who we love. And God, now I pray for the people you've brought here today, the people whom I love. Lord, I God, I pray that you would bless them through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would grant repentance to those who need to, to repent of their sins and trust in you. Uh, dear God, we thank you that we do not bow to the, the spirit of the age, but we bow to the only true and sovereign king of the universe who has revealed himself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and that we can know God intimately through him. So God, I pray that as the word is preached, that your spirit would attend the word. I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase, that I hide myself behind the cross, Lord, that nothing that is said from my mouth this morning would be said in a way that displeases you, God, that would be against you. But God, I pray that the words would be submissive to your word, your holy word. And I pray that that word, Lord, would work, that it would work through the power of your Holy Spirit to the people here today. Lord, we thank you. Uh, that we have a great God who has called us to come upon him in our hour of need. So God, our hour of need is now. We pray that you would speak through me to your people, through your holy word. We ask this through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? How could a good God allow this disaster to happen? Uh, these are frequent questions that are raised in our society. Uh, these type of questions are, are, are commonly asked by those who oppose or object to Christianity. If God is good, they say, then why do bad things happen? These questions are not new. Uh, there is nothing new under the sun, but have become a lot more common in our day because of the Enlightenment. One of the champions of the Enlightenment, which took place in the 1700s, the 1800s, was a French philosopher named Voltaire. Uh, He attacked Christianity and the benevolence of God in his popular satire book called Candide. Uh, The book follows a journey of a young man named Candide as he encounters the evil in this world. Uh, Voltaire consistently mocks God and the organized church throughout this book. Uh, Candide frequently repeats this phrase, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. It's hard to miss the premise of the book, that the world, which is so full of evil, how can a good God be at the center of it? 
Now, Voltaire became one of the leaders in the Enlightenment, and, and this popular work, Candide, was probably the most taught book in all of French history. It has radically influenced Western society, which we are a part of. According to Martin Seymour Smith, Candide is listed as the, one of the most influential books ever written. It's hard to deny its impact. So one of the questions why, one of the reasons why the question, why do bad things happen to good people is so pervasive is that books like Candide have shaped the worldview of our society. We have to understand the presuppositions that come with that question. Uh, Presupposition are the background beliefs that people assume before they enter into a conversation or dialogue. Our culture has been heavily influenced by these Enlightenment ideas without most of us even realizing it. Um, I've shared this statistic with you before, but uh, in a recent statistic that Bobby shared with me, uh, between 18 and 25-year-olds, 1% have a biblical worldview. 1%. So of the 2,000 students at Rock Hill High, you'd have 20 kids having a biblical worldview. Now the reason is because we have been influenced by the Enlightenment line of thinking. The, The predominant worldview of our society is rooted in that Enlightenment, which replaces God from being at the center of the universe with man being at the center. Because reason now trumps God. Now God has to submit to the reason of the age. Faith and reason should be separated. Reason is now the ultimate judge of the universe. God is now on the defensive. So what is the presupposition that lies behind that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, The presupposition is that there are actually good people. The predominant Western worldview believes that at the core of every human being is an inherent goodness, that we are created inherently good. Now, we are created in the image of God, so we have truth, and not all of us is bad. But the the question is often asked with disdain for the world and the God who created Why do bad things happen to good people? Not realizing that their question is wrong at its outset. People want this question answered in Scripture. But the Bible does not answer that question. It answers another question. Why do good things happen to bad people? The worldview put forward in the sacred Scriptures that we hold so dear is that man is not inherently good, but evil. Now, this has been an historic Baptist belief. Prior to the Age of Enlightenment, the doctrine of original sin is explained this way in a document called the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Now, this is, this is important because before the Enlightenment, this was common. Everyone believed in the doctrine of original sin. We all believed that we were all sinners, that our core was a wicked, deceitful heart, Jeremiah 17, 9. But today, people don't believe that. Listen to what this document says. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life that he had kept it, had threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this hour, Satan 
using subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve. Then by seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise holy counsel to permit having proposed in order to his own glory. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, thereby death came upon all men, all becoming dead in sin, wholly defiled in all our faculties and parts of soul and body. From this original corruption, whereby we have utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, wholly inclined to all evil, to precede all actual transgressions. The corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated, although it, th- although it be through Christ's pardon and mortified yet both itself, the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. All that to say is this, the church has long held the belief that the Bible did, does not teach that man is inherently good but evil. Baptists have always believed that, and the greatest challenge today is that the world doesn't believe it. And sadly, many Baptists don't either. If people ask the wrong question, they will never get to the right answer. Why do bad things happen to good people is the wrong question because it has the wrong presuppositions. We have to help people see how their prepositions are wrong and help them ask the right question. This morning's text, Jesus does just that. He sees the same problem of faulty presuppositions. So we, we, we enter the discussion of Jesus kind of laying the plane of one of his sermons. He just taught the crowd to, to settle your accounts with God. The day is coming of the final judgment. Settle your accounts with God. He's then interrupted and critiqued by his audience. The first point of today's sermon, the critique of the Lord, the critique of the Lord. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. There were some present at that very time, right when he was sharing this message of judgment, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? because they suffered in this way? The crowd just heard how important it was for them to settle their accounts. Instead, what do they do? They deflect what Jesus told them to somebody else. They attempted to change the subject. They brought up this historical event that happened under the reign of Pilate. Now, this event is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. We don't know where else. Um, It's not elsewhere in history. But it Violence and bloodshed was very common under the reign of Pilate. A Jewish historian Josephus mentions several major violent incidences that happened under the reign of Pontius Pilate. This event made an impact on the people. It's like when we, we, we open our newspaper and we see what is happening in our world and these questions impact us. Why do those things happen? Just like these people. So we know that throughout the gospel, Jesus had the, the ability to perceive people's thoughts. You have to be able, what is going on behind the question? So knowing their hearts, he responded to their telling of this event with this question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other 
Galileans because they suffered in this way. Those who shared the story believed that the Galileans who were punished by Pilate were worse sinners than others, i.e. they were worse sinners than them. The prevailing thought of the day was that people suffered because they did more bad or more evil than others. This is why Jesus was asked in John chapter 9, verse 2, about the blind man, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? People assume that if trouble happened to them in this life, it was because of their sin or the sin of their parents, that they were somehow more sinful than others. This was the same thing that was said to to Job by one of his friends in Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow, plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Job, you are suffering because you sinned and you did wrong. The innocent don't suffer. The people thought that bad things happened to people as a response to their sin, and Jesus helps correct them. Um, they're trying to divert attention away from Jesus' challenge to get ready for the day of judgment by settling their accounts with God. It was almost as if they were implying that they did not need to settle their accounts because they were not as bad as those who died under Pilate's hand. They heard the message, but they thought the message was for somebody else. Have you ever been at church, maybe, maybe even this sermon, and you're like, pastor's preaching, but you know who really needs to hear this message? So-and-so really needs to hear this message. What you're doing is you are diverting the message from your own heart and thinking that they need to hear it more than you. When the word of God is preached, don't think about the person next to you. Don't think about your spouse or your children or your parents. Think about your own heart. Receive it as a word of the Lord spoken to you. Jesus says the same thing in verse 4. He's challenging them again. On the, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Notice something. Jesus is undercutting the presupposition of the day that bad things happen to people in a fallen world, not because there are worse sinners, but rather because they are sinners. Jesus does more than just attack the presupposition, but he reinforces the message. Which brings us to our second point, the charge of the Lord. The charge of the Lord. I hope when we look at this, guys, what you, what you see is that when people ask you these kind of questions, that you, you, you do what Jesus does. You give them back to the matter at hand. Read with me again, verses 2 through 5. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus does not allow the crowd to avoid the real matter at hand. Are you right with God? Have you settled your accounts with God? Are you ready for the day 
of the Lord, when you will stand before Him as a holy judge. When people in our day make questions like that to us, how could God allow this to happen? We have to see how Jesus responds. One of the main problems in our churches is that people are filling our pews who have never truly repented. They believe themselves to be Christians. They attend church semi-regularly. They give a little money to the church, but they have never truly repented of their sins. You know, pastors are probably most at fault in this. Pastors have preached a gospel without repentance for years. Starting in the church growth movement in the 70s and 80s, uh, pastors were trained not to talk about sin, not to talk about repentance, because that would make people feel uncomfortable. And if they feel uncomfortable, guess what? They don't want to come back to church. So if you really want to grow your church, pastors, appealing to the selfish pride of pastors, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. The problem is that although people may be willing to listen to that message and positively respond to that message, that without repentance there is no true hope and there is no true faith. Saying a sinner's prayer will not get you into heaven. Saying a sinner's prayer will not get you right with God. The Bible never speaks about a sinner's prayer. What does the Bible speak about? Repentance. You must repent or you will likewise perish. So can I just stop? If you are here today and you are not a believer, please hear this gracious call of God to you to repent, to turn from your sins and trust in Him. God does not want you merely to repeat words of a prayer. He wants you to change your life. He wants to completely transform you from the inside out. And to change your life, you have to change your mind about Jesus. The, the Greek word for repentance comes from the word uh, metanoia. Uh, metanoia, meta means a new, and noia means mind. So to repent is to change your mind. So to change your mind about Jesus and about sin. So in order to truly repent, you have to change your mind about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot merely be a good teacher or a merely a prophet. You must view him as Lord and Savior. And now live in light of that reality. It's one thing to call him Lord. It's another thing to live in light of that reality. One of the clearest signs of true repentance is that a person works to cast off sin in their life. Now we all have sin and we all struggle with sin. The question is, is, do you agree with God about your sin? Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So to change your mind is to agree with God about what he says about sin. So true repentance is casting off arrogance towards others. True repentance is casting off lying against a brother. 
True repentance is not doing anything to sow discord among the brothers. How do you view sin? Do you agree with God about sin? Listen to what one pastor says. You know, repentance is not an absence of the struggle, but it is a renouncement that you are going to disagree with Jesus. J.D. Greer writes this, pastor in Raleigh. Repentance is acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of everything as a matter of who he is. Whatever disagreement with Jesus, he is right, you are wrong. Be that your position on abortion, sex before marriage, homosexuality, generosity, or anything else. While you may not understand all of his ways yet, you recognize that he makes the rules. Period. It means you do the things he says. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Jesus is Lord of all. And because Jesus is Lord of all, all must repent. The crowd wanted to divert the attention away from themselves on to other people. It's those that need to deal with their sin. It's those that need to repent. Beloved, if you, not, if, you, if you do not live a lifestyle of repentance before God, God may say to you, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The bottom line is, is you can't have Jesus as your Lord and not do what he says. Jesus says very clear that every human in the history of the world is a sinner and will perish unless they repent. Jesus is not only referring to a physical death of perishing, he's referring to an eternal death and a literal hell. See, Jesus does not want anyone to perish. I don't want anyone to perish. No human being wants anyone else to perish, but to come to repentance. That is the one way in. That is the one way into the kingdom, one way in to heaven. Jesus is patient with people. We should be patient with people. But beloved, there will come a day when his patience will end. Last point, the crucible of the Lord. The crucible of the Lord. The great crucible, the great test of the Lord is the test of your repentance. Will you change your mind about Jesus and repent or not? We all have sinned and we will all face God's judgment. But the question remains, will you repent? Look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus continuing to speak to this crowd, these objectors, these critiquers. He told this parable in verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. See, Jesus offers this final warning to the crowd through this parable. Every breath you take is an opportunity to repent. Every second the Lord allows you to live is an opportunity to repent. Every second the Lord allows your loved one who does not know Jesus is a day of grace and a day of mercy that God has extended to them because they don't deserve that day. 
They deserve to perish because of their sin. But God says, I'm going to give them another day. I'm going to give them more time to repent because I love them. I don't want them to perish. I want them to come to everlasting life. See, this man tending the garden comes and says, can I cut it down? Can I cut this down, this tree that bears no fruit? And he says this, he says, it's stealing the nutrients from the surrounding trees. Why should it use up the ground? I want you to notice in verse 8 how the Lord shows this patience towards the unrepentance. The man is told to leave it alone for another year so it can be uniquely cared for to help foster fruit by the vine dresser, God himself. He's going to tend this tree. He's going to loosen up its soil, the soil of the heart, and fertilize it with the word so that they may repent. And after a year, if there is a fruit, if there is fruit, the tree will remain. This is the idea of the, the, the life that lives a, a, a fruit-bearing life, the ones that we cast off sin. If you are not sure what repentance looks like, come talk to me. Let's talk about what it truly means to repent. Divine judgment can sound very harsh, can it? There's a reason why people say, don't preach on it. Because people, sometimes they don't want to hear it. It can sound harsh. But divine judgment does not occur without a long period of patience. If you are not a follower of Jesus, God has shown you patience today. God has granted you another day, another opportunity to repent of your sins. Do not spurn his warning. Repent and be saved. See, God offers this true repentance through his son, the only redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the sins of the world, for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He died for you. And God raised him from the dead. So by turning from your sins, by changing your mind about Jesus, his death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. There is not a better offer in the entire world. Jesus says, I will take all your wickedness. I will take every evil thing you did, and I will pay the penalty for it. You just have to trust me. You have to make me your Lord and Savior. There's not a better offer, beloved. Will you accept it is the key. As a church, how do we handle members that bear no fruit? What do we do with the person who never comes to worship? What do we do with the person who never gives, never serves, never visibly loves the body? Well, the first thing we do is we show patience, don't we? We want to be like the Lord. We want to extend patience. We want to give them more time. So we encourage, we exhort, we love, we pray, we plead. We write notes, we call, we build relationships. We do whatever is in our power to call people to repentance, to come back to the church. We do whatever we can with the breath we have in our bodies. But there's going to come a time where we're going to have to make a decision to warn them of the coming judgment, which is far worse that if you do not repent, you will perish. There were people in the crowd that didn't want to deal with their own sin and their own repentance. They wanted to shift the conversation to the punishment of the sins of others. 
But Jesus looks at them and says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He doesn't explain why the evil happened. What he does do, he calls people to repentance. Beloved, tragedies happen in a fallen world. And there are days when I cry, Lord, come. Lord, come. I don't want to see any more evil. I don't want to see any more pain. Come, Lord Jesus. And when I pray that, I'm, I'm telling the Lord to stop being patient with sinners. Whether it's a bridge collapse in Minneapolis, a tsunami in Japan, or a mine collapse in Turkey, which we saw this week, tragedies are going to happen. How will you respond? Will you raise your fist and judge God in the spirit of the Enlightenment, questioning His wisdom and His sovereignty? As we read what God said to Job, I will answer you like a man. Or will we allow those events to serve as a reminder that unless we repent, we will likewise perish? The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Do not misinterpret tragedy. Tragedies serve as a very real reminder that unless people repent, they will perish. Calling people to repentance is not hard and cold or mean. It's full of grace. Why? Because God sent His Son to make a way for you and me to get right with God, to settle our accounts through Him. Jesus was crushed for our sins, for those who, of us who have truly repented. We have one who have already died in our place. The one who demands and offers repentance is the same one who's already offered his own life for you. God says, repent, because I've already given my life for you. Accept my sacrifice. Do not resist his calling. Do not stay in your sins. He is patient with you. But there will be a day when his patience will run out. He stands this morning and offers repentance. He offers himself. He offers forgiveness of every wicked, evil thing you have ever done. And he offers it one way, through repentance. He stands to give you his perfect record his righteousness, his perfect life. Can I just challenge you to change your mind about Jesus, confess your sins, call on the Lord, and live for his glory. Repent before it is too late. Jesus is worth it. Do not die in your sins. Repent and come to Christ. Change your mind about Jesus and live. Let's pray. Father, speak, O Lord, to the people here. God, if there is people who need to repent, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak, 
that your word would work, God, that you would bring people to repentance, that they may not perish, that they may experience everlasting life. God, I pray that you would wash away their sins, that you would cleanse them, that you would purify them. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that people would call upon the name of the Lord, they would change their mind about you and repent and be saved. God, help us, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.